If you are in Exodus chapter 6, we're actually going to begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 5. Uh, it is our practice uh, when we read God's Word together to stand when we do. So if you are able, uh, please stand uh, as we honor God's holy Word. Uh, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, and, and there's that all caps word, right? That's, that's how we know our English Bibles are translating that Hebrew word, Yahweh, that covenant name of God. Um, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. I therefore say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, uh, behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For, my, for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Blessed Jesus, at your word, we are gathered all to hear you. Let our hearts and souls be stirred now to seek and love and fear you. By your teachings, sweet and holy, drawn from earth to love you solely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so here's a, little, um, here's a little insider info. You may not know this yet, um, but I'm here to just make sure you understand. Um, life doesn't always go the way you think it ought to. I'm just going to lay that out there for you. I know most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I understand. That's fine. Maybe one day you will. 
But the reality is life doesn't always go the way we want it to, the way we think it should, the way we think it should if, quite honestly, God actually really did love me. We do that, right? We do this sort of, we examine the world in which we live. We, we watch our lives. We, we, we see how things are turning out for ourselves. And we, we realize this isn't what I expected. This isn't the way I thought this was going to go. And, and usually what that means is there's, there's, there's loss, there's hurt, there's distraction, there's pain, there's suffering, there's difficulty. Usually what we mean is, um, you know, I expected everything to be great, smooth sailing, wonderful, and I'd have a bazillion dollars and I would own the company and everybody would think, you're right, we had this, this plan. And it doesn't seem to turn out the way we thought it would. The question is, what do you do in those moments? What do you do in those days? What do you do at that time? Because that's exactly where Moses is as in this passage. You recall God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh, uh, Aaron will be, you know, you and Aaron go into Pharaoh's office, knock on the door. Hey, Pharaoh, look, I know you're the king and ruler of Egypt, but and, and then demand, right? The God of Israel says, let my people go. And, and, and Moses thinks, I mean, we're going to be eating lunch on the way. Like we better not be leaving on Sunday because we're going to stop and get Chick-fil-A as we're leaving Egypt. And it doesn't work out that way. That's not where the Israelites are. Instead, they are great, more greatly oppressed. Yeah, we, the state used to provide you with straw to build your bricks. Now, you've got to go find it yourself. They've added to the work. They've made it more difficult. And yet... Never relax the quota at all. The number of bricks you were making before, you've still got to keep making. Oh, and it just so happens that the foremen, who are Israelites, have, have turned their attention to Pharaoh. Maybe, maybe if we appeal to the ruler of the very people who have us oppressed, and, and then you know, we, can, we can appeal to his his, I don't know, his good nature, his nice side, his kindness. I don't know why they thought he had any. And they're complaining against Moses and Aaron. It's your fault that we are a stench in the nostrils of Egypt. What do you do? Where do you go? Where do you turn when things don't turn out the way you thought they would? The way you expected them to? Well, we find Moses here, he takes his problems straight to God. Notice in verses 22 and 23, he took his troubles, his anguish, his fear, his concern, and his doubts, and he went straight to God. He's, we find him in verse 22 praying. He's, he's laying his fears and concerns and troubles out before God. 
And already you and I are encouraged because God doesn't shush him. Did you notice that? God doesn't say, whoa, whoa, hold on, time out. You're not allowed to bring your problems to me. Never. In fact, about the only things we ever find Moses in trouble for is direct disobedience of clearly revealed commands from God. And yet he's pouring out his, his trouble, his pain, his anguish before God. The reality is, that's our world. We have conflict. We have problems. We have doubts. We have fears. We have anguish. We have struggles. And you are invited to take them even to the very throne room of heaven. God invites you to come to him in those moments. That's where we find Moses in verses 22 and 23. You want further evidence? Go read the book of Job. His friends are accusing him of some egregious sin. And he maintains his innocence throughout the book and yet asks God the hard questions. Need more evidence? Go read the Psalms. When David pours out his heart and says, How long, O Lord? Where are you? Why aren't you squashing your enemies? Why aren't you putting these wicked people to death? Why do the nations rage? You want more evidence? Look at Jesus in the garden. You know, Father, if there's a different cup I could drink, I would drink it. Or look at Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Believer, you need to be encouraged. You have the right to take your fears, your concerns, your doubts, your struggles. You're invited to lay those out before God. You're invited, welcomed into his presence. That's a, that's a truth that comforts us because we all have struggles. We all have doubts. But let me also caution you. Because notice what Moses actually says in these two verses. There are accusations against God very sort of specific accusations. God is now the cause of Israel's trouble. God, why have you done this evil to your own people? He's challenging. He's questioning God's character. He questions God's power. He questions God's wisdom. Why did you send me? You've got the wrong guy. I'm not the guy that was supposed to go. In fact, I told you that back at the burning bush and you wouldn't listen to me. God, you've either chosen poorly or you're mean to me and you're doing evil to the Israelites. You're sending me on this fool's errand. There's a third complaint. We aren't delivered yet. Your people are still slaves in Egypt. Don't you care? Don't you love them? Don't you love them as much as I do? 
I mean, does it not bother you that your people that, that you promised to save are still slaves in Egypt? Like, your timing's all off. You're weak. You don't care. I mean, he's challenging God's wisdom, his character, his power. He's laying all of that out before God as an, as an accusation against him. But he's also showing a lack of patience. And we go, yeah, but that's not really a big deal. But is it? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What's that next one? You know, God doesn't move on our timetable. We lay out the calendar. We out the schedule, lay out the schedule and we say, okay, God... Is this what we're going to agree on? And, and, and better yet, this is what we're going to agree on. And this is when and how you're going to do the things you're going to do. And, and you're not going to make me wait. You're going to act and you're going to act decisively and quickly and immediately. We hate waiting. How often does God ever act in a moment? I think in some ways that's the oddity of creation. What he does in seven literal days, he never does again. He never again acts that quickly and, and decisively. Things take time. Chick-fil-A got all the, all the praise and glory during the pandemic because they could quickly shift to the fastest drive through in the history of the world. And if we have to wait for 10 cars. We get angry. Yes Moses comes to God's with his, God with his fears. And his concern. And his doubts. But he's not completely guiltless. He's actually accusing God. Of being wicked. Of being evil. Of not caring about his people. And then we get God's response, God's answer to Moses' prayer. Notice, first of all, that God reminds Moses that he rules. He's the one who rules over creation and the hearts of rulers, even rulers over wicked lands like Egypt. And he's also... He also rules over time. That, 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 that his wisdom, his time is the timetable we operate by, not our own. I'm not going to um, overly belabor this because we're going to make a bigger deal of this in a couple of weeks. But let me just make a couple of observations about God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's rule uh, from this passage. Look at verse 1. He reminds Moses that everything is under his control. Just wait, Moses. Have a seat. Watch. You're about to see what's going to happen. Just a little advance warning to you and me. It still doesn't happen in an afternoon. It still takes months and months, perhaps years, before the Israelites are actually delivered but but god's telling moses 
Pharaoh is a pawn and I move him where I will. His desires, his actions are actually under my control. Yes, Pharaoh may think he's a god. And the Egyptians might think he's a god. But he's, he's under my authority. He's under my control. And it's by my power and that, that strong hand could refer to Pharaoh's strong hand because Pharaoh will eventually say, get out and, and here, take stuff, go, leave. It could be the strong hand that is sort of required to cause Pharaoh to let Israel go. God is sovereign even over wicked rulers. But then there's a, a second response in verses 2 and 3. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. No, we're not going to try to sing that. It's actually in your hymn book. We're not singing it. Um, but it's that God Almighty name. And, and he's telling Moses, look, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as God Almighty. You know me as Yahweh. Now, go read Genesis. Because Yahweh actually shows up all over Genesis. In fact, the name Yahweh actually comes out of Abraham's mouth in Genesis 15. So God's not saying that was a name then and this is a name now. He's not saying that. He's simply pointing out they knew me as as sovereign and authoritative. They didn't, they didn't know and understand my personal, intimate involvement in your deliverance like you were going to. If you remember, Abraham knew that his people would be in Egypt. He, they knew they'd be in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. And he knew that God would deliver his people, but he didn't get to see it. He didn't get to experience. He didn't get to be a part of that. You remember names speak to people's character. And so to know God as sovereign, to know God as almighty. Abraham and Sarah had a son despite being older than anyone in this room. Despite being years, decades past childbearing age. Joseph's brothers meant him harm, but God was at work through all of it. How do we know? Because God meant it for good. They understand God as sovereign. They understood God as God Almighty. But they don't understand the full impact of this covenant name, Yahweh. Or you could say it another way, God, they knew God as the maker of promises. Moses is going to know God as the keeper of promises, the fulfiller of those promises. In fact, I pointed out a week or two ago, I think, that uh, in many ways, who is God is really the aim of the book of Exodus. The whole book unfolds for us who is Yahweh? God rules. God also remembers. Look at verses 4 and 5. You do realize 
God doesn't use Evernote. God doesn't use Dropbox. God doesn't use Google Drive. God doesn't use sticky notes on the refrigerator to remind you these are the things we need from the grocery store. God doesn't forget. God doesn't lose track. He doesn't have a thought one minute. Get up, walk into another room and forget why you got up and walked into that room. And yet, we're told, verses 4 and 5, that God has established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's established a covenant with Israel. And He tells us at the end of verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. Moses has questioned God's character. That covenant he made with Abraham, if you recall, um, he had Abraham kill animals, cut them in half, and pull the halves apart. And this was... This was how covenants were made back in the ancient Near East. You you pulled these animals apart and then people would walk between the parts. And the point is to say, if I fail to do what I promise to do, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. Abraham didn't walk through the pieces. God staked his very life and character on fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Moses just attacked that character. And God says, look, I understand. I've remembered my covenant. And what that means is if I don't do what I promised Abraham I would do 500 years ago, 400 years ago, then you can kill me. Cut me in half just like these animals, just like these parts. God had already staked his life, his existence, his character on fulfilling that promise. And he's telling Moses, I've remembered that covenant. That doesn't mean he forgot it. It means, you could loosely translate it like this. Sit down, buckle your seatbelt. It's about to get crazy. Like things are about to, anytime God remembers You better pay attention because what's coming is going to be pretty impressive. And so he looks at Moses and says, look, I I rule and reign even over Pharaoh's heart. I rule and reign over chronology. I rule and reign over the clock. It's not your time. It's mine. Oh, and Moses, I've remembered my covenant. I'm prepared to act. I'm prepared to fulfill the promise I made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. When you doubt, when you, when you lay your fears and concerns and doubts and heartaches and headaches before God, remember He rules, He remembers, and lastly, God redeems. I tried to call attention to seven I wills in verses 6 through 12. And I want you to, a little English class. I know it's summer. I know we don't do school in summer. Uh, but just humor me for a second. Um, glance through verses 6 through 12. Pay attention to all the subjective pronouns 
What did he just say? They're all first person singular. I. God alone works and acts to bring about Israel's deliverance. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. You notice God is doing all the work. Now the reality is, we'll see this in just a second, but it's not really seven promises. In fact, it's really probably three or four. The seven is really a literary device. You know, seven is the, that number of perfection, of completion, of totality. In other words, Moses, I'm going to do everything for your deliverance and there will be absolutely nothing left for you to do. I, I hope you already are thinking of your own salvation. It's all of God's grace. It's all of His work. And there's nothing left for you to do. Well, but if I give a little more, that's not going to help. But if I just try a little harder at being a little better, that doesn't get you anything. If I just beat myself up a little bit more for the the sin and wickedness that even people don't see, that's not going to help you. We're reminded that our salvation is all of God's work and all of God's grace. There's nothing left to do. Notice the first two I wills. I'll bring you out and I will deliver you. I'm the one who's going to get you out from underneath this wicked, oppressive ruler And this wicked, oppressive people who keep you as slaves in Egypt. Surely at some level, if if Israel had had the power and the authority and the gumption to free themselves, they would have already. I mean, 400 years? And the thought never crossed their minds? God says, I'm the one who's going to bring your freedom. I'm going to liberate you, get you out from these current conditions. The third, I will, I will redeem you. It's a financial term. You know this. It's on some of the glass bottles. You can redeem glass bottles for a nickel or a dime in some states. It's, it purely means the debt has been paid. The ransom has been paid so that you are now free to go. It's a, a marketplace financial term the fourth and fifth i will take you to be my people and i will be your god it's it's literally the the language is that god will adopt israel and they will be his children he's already told moses he's already told pharaoh "This, this is my firstborn son and you'll let my firstborn son go or your firstborn son will suffer the consequences we'll see that in Several chapters. God has the right to redeem because he's the kinsman redeemer. He's the nearest relative. He's the the closest one that can bring about the, the freedom, the redemption, the deliverance of 
Israel. And then you notice the final two. I'll bring you into the land and I'll give it to you for your possession. These people who are slaves in Egypt will own land in Canaan that they didn't have to do anything for. God's going to get them there and give it to them to be their possession. See, the reality is the first three focus on getting Israel out of Egypt. I will will deliver you. uh, I'll bring you out. I'll deliver you. I'll redeem you. Those first three focus on getting Israel out of Egypt. The last two focus on getting Israel into the promised land. I've said this before. You know, parents, if you ever you teach your children, you ask your children, what, what, did, what does Jesus do for us? What has Jesus done for us? Inevitably, usually the first answer to come out of their mouths is He saved me from my sin. And that's true. But it's incomplete. He did more than that. It's not that He did less than that. It's not that He didn't do that. He absolutely saves us from our sin. But he didn't just take us out of bondage and slavery to sin and leave us alone. He's promised to deliver us to the, our new land, the new heavens and the new earth. But I don't even think that's the greatest benefit of our salvation. Because in between getting out of Egypt and getting to the promised land is a personal, intimate relationship. With God Almighty. You will be my people. And I will be your God. We'll watch as as they wander through the wilderness. the, The place, the importance, the value of God's presence with His people. God identifies with Israel. He says, look, you are my people and I'm your God and we're in this together. Men, we just read... 2 Samuel 6 and 7 this past Wednesday night. And we pointed out the fact that you know, David wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, look, you're not the one. So far, I've been in this tent, right? Because it's, it's easy to pack up and move. Why? Because my people are mobile people. And so as long as my people are a mobile people, I'm a mobile God. He identifies with His people. God is present with His people. People. Yes, take your fears, your doubts, your concerns to God. But remember that He rules, He remembers, and He redeems. Let me make just three applications from this passage. First is this. It's interesting to me that almost everything God tells Moses... In this passage, he has told him before. It's all there back in chapter 3 and the burning bush. He's just repeating, reminding Moses of the things he's already heard and already known. Have you ever thought about just how much our growth in grace isn't really learning new stuff? 
but making sure we've learned the old stuff better and well. A lot of times we don't really need more information. We don't need new information. We don't need new facts and figures and details about God's word. We need to be reminded all over again that my salvation is safe and secure in Christ because he has accomplished it for us. In fact, if you walk out of here every single Sunday, as long as you're at Grace Covenant, and you walk out with, well, he didn't really didn't say anything new, but he sure told me again that Jesus loves me. I'm good with that. That's really what we need. Think of how frustrated we get. I'm, I'm told this is true of teenagers. I don't know if this is true or not. I'm told that teenagers especially don't like being told things they've already been told before. Right? You, I know. I know. But I said, I know. I mean, I said it through. I know. So much of our growth in grace is being told things we've been told before. A lot of times the answer isn't new information or better information. It's a, a better understanding of the information we already know and have. A second application. Your salvation is just like Israel's deliverance. It's all a work of a sovereign God with whom you now have an intimate, personal relationship. Those seven I wills that he tells Moses to tell Israel, they're the same I wills he tells us. I will free you from slavery to sin. I will free you from that bondage. I will redeem you. I will pay the price that has to be paid to free you from your sin. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will call you my own. You will bear my name. And I will take you into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not going to get you part of the way. I'm not going to get you some of the way. I'm going to make sure you get there. He doesn't say, I'm going to get you out of Israel. I'm going to give you directions, hand you a map, maybe a really good compass, kind of help you get oriented. You know, do your, your, your scouts orienteering class, whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you to the promised land and I'm going to give it to you. Believer, you have those exact same promises. Is that new information? Not at all. Do we need to be reminded all over again that our salvation is all of God's grace and He will make sure to set us on Canaan's shore at the last day, absolutely. Third and finally, as we prepare to come to uh, this table together, uh, let me remind you that God hasn't changed. God's not suddenly new or different today. The aim of our salvation isn't just to deliver us from sin. And it's not just so that we can go to heaven. The aim of our salvation is so that we can have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Why? Look at this table. He took on flesh to identify with us. He became a man to identify with us, to accomplish our 
salvation. He identifies with his people. And maybe nowhere better do we see, do we see this better than in this table, in this meal. Because we're going to come together. We're going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And proclaim his death until he comes through this intimate, personal relationship with our Savior. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us enough to uh, redeem us, to accomplish all of our salvation, uh, to do that which we cannot, could not do, wouldn't even want to do uh, because of our sin. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray uh, that even as we prepare in just a minute to come to this table, uh, that you would remind us all over again of your work to save us, of your love for us, and your commitment to set our feet on Canaan's shore. We pray all of these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.